you know, if you don't like the book that somebody wrote, you know, about a subject that you care about or want to care about or are interested in, then write your own damn book. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, November 29th. Today, I'm joined by Bill Cohan to talk about his conversation with the author Michael Lewis, who is defending his best-selling biography of Sam Bankman-Fried against criticism that he was too cozy with his subject. And later, Eric Gardner and Ben Landy get into Elon Musk's thermonuclear lawsuit against Media Matters and why it might blow up in his face. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for Powers That Be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com dot me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep you're creating a better life happy wednesday everybody welcome to the powers that be it's been a minute but we have bill cohan back on the show happy holidays my hey, friend peter thank you same to you so i want to talk to you about sbf sam beckman fried and michael lewis and i'm gonna let Listeners remember, uh, before SBF was found guilty, before he was thrown in jail, <laughs> one of the the issues with him was that he wouldn't shut up. He kept talking to reporters. He was tweeting. As he was facing charges, he was like kept doing a media tour. The uh, prosecution said that he was doing witness tampering. Judge agreed, all this stuff. Michael Lewis wrote a book about SBF called Going Infinite. Uh, it came out a few months back. It feels like he also can't stop talking about his book and SPF. <laughs> and he did an interview with you uh, about the book. And, you know, is is 
defensive about some of the criticisms of going infinite, that he's too cozy with Sam Bankman-Fried. When you talk to him, like, what's his demeanor like about this book? Is he, like, defensive? Is he prickly? I watched the 60 Minutes interview. He seems pretty nice about it while also being defensive and going after his critics. What You know, and, and why is he still doing this? I mean, the book's a bestseller. Yeah, I mean, the, the book uh, was a number one bestseller. I mean, uh, any author <laughs> who gets two segments on 60 Minutes, like Michael has uh, this time and in in the past, definitely has no reason to be defensive, has in, has only to be, you know, euphoric, uh, because mm-hmm. that's definitely going to make the book a bestseller. Look, I mean, I've known Michael a long time because we were at Vanity Fair together for many years. And the funny thing is that, you know, you look at what he told me, some of the things that he told me, and some people have been scratching their heads like, wow, he comes off as defensive or whatever, or a little tone deaf maybe, but he's so charming and so elegant in the way he sort of delivers his his thoughts and his commentary that you can't help, of course, be uh, charmed by him. And um, I don't think he feels as defensive or as apologetic about, you know, his approach to his subject, in this case, SBF, than... Mm-hmm. You know, like it might read without hearing that uh, charming Southern New Orleans lilt that that he has. You know, if you read it sort of without all that and without being in conversation with him, then it does seem like he could comes off a little bit defensive. Yeah, I mean, I got that vibe in the sixty Minutes interview. It's like this nice dad from New Orleans. Um, Can you just tell us real quick, like, what the criticisms of this book are and, and what his response to them was? Well, I think there are a couple, couple of things, Peter. First, I think people wanted a different book from Michael. Like they wanted a book that g- gave us the nitty gritty of uh, this guy's rise and then the, the nitty gritty of his fall. I still mm-hmm. think there's a book to be written about that. Uh, you know, it's not the book that Michael wrote. And that's not the book that, you know, just because people wanted him to write that book. You mean, too bad. I mean, people, you know, if you don't like the book that somebody wrote, you know, about a subject that you care about or want to care about or are interested in, then write your own damn book. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so that's one criticism, that, that, that they didn't write, he didn't write the book they wanted him to write. The other criticism, I think, is that he was too sort of embedded with Michael Lewis and I'm with uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, and, you know, he did spend an awful lot of time with him. He had incredible access to him. As much as he was talking to everybody else and texting and tweeting and all that stuff, he obviously gave most time to anybody. He gave it to Michael Lewis, and I think um, Michael, at the end of the day, came off feeling a, a fair amount of sympathy for Sam Bankman-Fried, mm-hmm. and, he, and I think he still does, and I think people don't like that. I mean, because, you know, here's this, it's like, you know, if, if somebody wrote a book, uh, being sympathetic to Bernie Madoff or to, Mm -hmm. to Jeffrey Epstein or to, or to Harvey Weinstein, you know, if you did any of those things, then people would be, you know, quite peeved at you. And I think Mm -hmm. there's a little of that going on here. What Michael calls sort of the, the moral prism that, you know, Americans have about, about this, you know, he, he also, you know, he was remarking how completely, you know, on board with 
the book the the Brits seem to be, mm-hmm. but the Americans sort of have this moral prism that they're looking at it through and and are giving him grief for it. His point, and and I'm not sure I necessarily agree with this because I don't do this in in my own books, but but his point is, you know. He embeds with people. That's what he does. Mm-hmm. He embeds with people, uh, and he just uh, spends as much time as he possibly can with them. And then he writes uh, books uh, based on that, uh, you know. And that's the way he does uh, his books. And he doesn't feel like he can write them any other way. For me, I don't want. I don't want to embed with people I write about. They wouldn't want me to be in bed with them. They wouldn't want me to be in bed with them or embed with them. Uh, but I, but I do get them to give me interviews, you know, until I exhaust my questions, and that's probably that's good enough for me, you know. And I'm sure that's good enough for the people who I write about, and that gives me plenty of distance and plenty of ways, you know, that I need to write what I feel without about what really happened without feeling the least bit, you know, guilty about what I end up writing about or feeling or having people feel that I should have written a book that was less sympathetic and more Mm. more this or more that. Yeah, he did. He mentioned the American moral filter uh, through which this this book was received, which feels also like there's a generational aspect to this as well. A lot of uh, younger writers and critics out there wanted what you said, a book that was like extremely critical of SPF top to bottom, a very maximalist, good versus evil kind of view of the world. But one one way I kind of sympathize with him, though, and I want your opinion on this as a writer, is for narrative, long form, nonfiction writing forever (laughs) before social media, the goal was to like sometimes embed with people, get to know them. This is the whole what it takes, you know, view of writing biographies and narrative nonfiction, like what makes these people tick and you got to get in there and you got to figure them out. And just because you are embedding with them, it doesn't mean you're rooting for them. Um, and I think that's a, what what Michael's point of view on this is. He This is what he told you, quote, it's kind of a treacherous environment to become a writer of narrative nonfiction right now. The whole idea that it's wrong to get to know your subject, that it's wrong to immerse yourself in your subject's life. I don't know how you write it any other way. I mean, what do you do? Do you go read what other people write? The idea that somehow it distorted my view of things to have been with him so much and just around this thing so often, I just don't get that. One of the best books I've read in the last couple of years was, and I know it's dated, my friend, but your book about the Duke lacrosse scandal, The Price of Mm. Silence. Great Christmas gift out there, everybody, available on Amazon. Bill's book about the Duke lacrosse scandal. Um, One of the main characters in that scandal uh, if not the main character, was the DA, Mike Nifong, who, you know, led this botched prosecution of these three lacrosse players and looked past evidence <laughs> that would have proven them innocent. He would seem like he was doing it for political reasons. I know you wrote this after the fact. You didn't embed with any of these people. But like one reason I was grabbed in the book so early was that like you explained Nifong's background, his life before he became DA, like, and you sort of were able to follow the trail of how he got ambitious and corrupted and, and fucked all this up. But I wouldn't have been like as grabbed if like out of the gate, you were telling me and not showing me this guy is bad, blah, 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 blah. So like, how do you approach this stuff as a writer in a way that would satisfy the critics, you know? Yeah. I mean, you're writing a book about an incident or about a 
company or a firm or whatever, mm -hmm. you have to do a long wind up uh, mm -hmm. and, and then, you know, let the plays develop gradually and let them unfold. I mean, you know, you have to develop the characters, you have to explain their backgrounds, you have to describe sort of, you know, the influences uh, that affected their lives as they were growing up, uh, just like we all have things that affected our lives, and you would hope that somebody who wrote about us, you know, would take the time to understand what happened to you in your life, and you'd get enough access to somebody to have them tell you that. Or if they won't sit down with you, which is, in my case, fortunately rare, mm -hmm. uh, but if they, if they don't sit down with you and explain to you all these things, you can sort of dig it up, you know, on your own. Uh, and I just think it's important to make sure that the reader understands as much as possible about the backgrounds of the main characters that, that are going to be sort of leading the charge in, in the narrative and in the story. And I'm not sure I agree with kind of everything, the way you characterize the lacrosse story. I mean, mm -hmm. I find Nifong to be a bit more sympathetic than most people do. I think he didn't really do this for political reasons, uh, even though people think that he did. You know, he didn't actually get involved in the prosecution until it was already in the court system, even mm -hmm. though he was mm -hmm. the DA. It was actually uh, assistant DA and, and a judge who forced the kids to give their DNA evidence because they were going to do it voluntarily. And then some of the parents of the kids who were sophisticated Washington lawyers said, you know, NFW. And so they they told the, the district attorney's office that they wouldn't participate. And so then they had to get a judge to order them to participate. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's how that all got into the to the local justice system. Uh, it's a very complicated story, and I and I felt it was really important in that case to tell that complicated story and to really upset the uh, existing narrative uh, of what really happened. You know, a narrative had gotten mm -hmm. uh, embedded. Talk about getting embedded. A narrative had gotten embedded that the kids were kind of saintly and that the woman and the DA were evil uh, mm -hmm. and had kind of made this whole thing up and, you know, but... Actually, there's a lot more to it than that. I won't ruin it for people, but there's a lot more to it than that, and it's an incredible story. And really, one of the first stories that got into uh, the whole topic of privilege and elitism and woke behavior and uh, you know how the justice system can uh, work against people who are less privileged and work for for people who have the money. Anyway, we've, we're we far afield from, from Michael Lewis, but to me, what's more important than embedding, and I understand why Michael do, does this because he's such a great storyteller, and, and he surprises people with his stories. You know, the case of Going Infinite was a, you know, was surprising to people. That's not what they expected. People thought, you know, for months and months and months, oh my God, Michael Lewis is spending all this time with Sam Bankman-Fried. He's going to pull back the curtain on this guy and tell us exactly who he is and how he made all this money and became so wealthy and then how it all came tumbling down. And he really didn't do that because that's not the story that Michael wanted to write. For me, I probably would have written it that way. But Michael, he's got a real gift for writing stories from different perspectives. I mean, when I wrote uh, the book about the collapse of Bear Stearns, you know, he wrote a book about, uh, from the perspective of the people at Bear Stearns, he wrote a book about seeing trouble coming in the mortgage market 
mm-hmm. uh, and then the big short, and, and then finding the people who saw that trouble coming and wrote about them. I would I didn't even think about that. So he has this gift of finding stories from different perspectives and then writing about them. Uh, my approach, for better or for worse, is to you know dig into what really happened at these places, how Bear Stearns went down the tubes in a week, what happened to GE, the, the most valuable, respected company in the world, and why it's no longer that way, or, or what really happened in the Duke lacrosse case, or, you know, in my new book is, you know, what happened with Apollo and uh, Leon Black and Mark Rowan and Josh Harris and that incredible firm that they built and why they had this succession drama. You know, it's just a different approach. And my defense of Michael and what he's doing is, hey, this is his book. If you don't like it, then you write your own damn book and write what you want to write. This <laughs> yeah. is what he wrote. <laughs> that is a great defense in the end. Bill, thanks for letting me uh, shoehorn some uh, my my obsession oh, with Duke lacrosse scandal. Well, into this I, I, you know, <laughs> I, I'm glad that you you, you did, uh, Peter. And look, now we got another crisis down there because our football coach got got snagged by Texas A&M in the middle of the night, like the I the Baltimore that. Colts leaving for Indianapolis. So we'll get <laughs> well, through I'm it. To, I'm going to need a scouting report from you as a as an SEC fan, but we'll do that another time. Thank you, Bill. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Peter. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right. I found that on Etsy. It's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. 
You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here with Eric Gardner to talk about Elon Musk and what uh, Eric texted me yesterday is a candidate for the dumbest lawsuit of the year, which is the Musk defamation suit against Media Matters uh, for having the gall to point out that advertising on Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it uh, is indeed sometimes popping up next to extreme racist and anti-Semitic content. Eric, talk to me about this suit that Musk filed. What happened and, and what's the argument being made on both sides? Yeah, so, you know, after buying the platform for $44 billion, Musk is now trying to make it a business. And that's being frustrated by the fact that all these advertisers are, are leaving upon a report that their content is being hosted right next to anti-Semitic Nazi content and all that. And, and so... Elon is frustrated and very mad. And to make the point that what he sees as a report that went too far, he, he's filing a lawsuit. He claims business disparagement. He claims that they have tortiously interfered with his contracts with, with all the advertisers. Well, what do you make of all this? Because I, I mean, the thing is that in the lawsuit that Musk filed, they acknowledge that ads for Apple, IBM, all these Fortune 500 companies, they were appearing next to anti-Semitic content. But it seems like their argument is basically that the media matters sort of tricked Twitter into placing those ads next to the content. They, they followed pro-Nazi accounts, they followed these advertisers, and then they were just sort of refreshing the screen over and over until they popped up with that juxtaposition so they could screenshot it and say, gotcha. That, that seems like the, the core of the defamation claim. But Twitter and Musk acknowledge those ads did appear there. It's not like that didn't happen. And the other problem for Musk, of course, is that it seems to me the other big brand safety issue is Musk himself. I mean, while this is happening with the ads, Musk is out there promoting and responding to arguably anti-Semitic content. He's saying that the idea that, that, that some Jews or Jewish groups are endorsing a version of like white replacement theory or white genocide is, quote, the actual truth. So, you know, there, there's a lot going on here, but obviously a lot of different reasons that advertisers might be fleeing this platform. Yeah, I mean, if Musk wants to make the case that Media Matters uh, engaged in gotcha journalism, sure, go for it. You know, he can, you know, make that case. He has a big microphone. He can tell everyone he, who he wants that this was exaggerated, that he can add as much context as he wants. The problem is, as a legal claim, he has to show that this was objectively false. And that's where this fails and why I find it so stupid. I mean, the suit complains that Media Matters has falsely portrayed Twitter as a risky, unsafe platform for advertisers. Now, even if you disagree there, isn't that a matter of opinion? I understand that the case turns on things like tortious interference and ever since ABC paid a nine-figure settlement figure to end the pink slime case, you know, I'm, I'm careful not to get ahead of these things and dismiss them out of hand. But come on, there's still got to be objective false reporting for this suit to even stand a chance. You know, I, I might even go so far as to say that if this case results in any sort of substantial post-judgment payment, 
Musk should print out the transcript of this podcast and I'll eat it on, on a future episode. <laughs> okay, but he did file it in Texas, which seems notable. From, from my limited understanding, it sounds like there is an anti-slap angle here that where it makes it harder for Media Matters to get this case dismissed out of hand, right? Well, that's where it gets pretty interesting. So Texas does have an anti-slap law, but the problem is that this is brought in federal uh, courts. Now, the wrinkle here is that when you sign up for a service with Twitter, you actually agree to adjudicate your disputes in, in Northern California. And Twitter originally made this provision kind of to protect itself. And what's funny and interesting and ironic about this is that a few years ago, after Twitter kicked Donald Trump off its platform, Ken Paxton, the AG of Texas, sounded a fury about conservative censorship, and he started an investigation uh, into Twitter. And Twitter filed a lawsuit in San Francisco saying that uh, Paxton's office was harassing him. And this went all the way up to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals about, you know, whether this case should proceed in San Francisco or not. Now, who is representing Musk in this case? Actually, it is lawyers who until very, very recently were in Ken Paxton's office. So, I mean, the turnabout is is, is fantastic and, and interesting, but I, I, I do wonder whether one of the first moves for media matters will be a jurisdictional move, a move to try to uh, enforce that that agreement that this should take place in San Francisco. And you almost never see, uh, you know, a, a, a defendant like this in, in media matters position do something along these lines. But yeah, I don't think that they want to be stuck in Texas fineness. They'd rather be in California where there is an anti-slap law. Well, what do you think are the odds that this case just gets dismissed before it goes anywhere? Because there is a lot of heat on this case now. Well, the funny thing is that, uh, you know, the conversations I've been hearing is whether or not Media Matters even wants to try to dismiss it out of hand. You know, usually you would bring what's called the Rule 12 motion, you know, that they haven't stated a plausible claim. But there is kind of a sentiment out there that, you know, hey, let's just skip that and we'll proceed to discovery. And then, you Mm -hmm. know, and then, you know, we'll investigate whether or not it's true or not that there are anti-Semitic content on on the platform. Uh, And that'll embarrass uh, Elon Musk and and, and all that. So to my eyes, yeah, I think they have a pretty good shot of kicking it very early on on a a motion to dismiss. The question is whether there will be some other sort of tactical gamesmanship here, whether they're going to try to move it to a different state or whether or not they're going to just answer the the suit and uh, and go to discovery because that you know might be you know a better move than than you know trying to argue these wonky areas of law on first impression. Eric, I'm glad you brought up discovery because I, I've heard people sort of in both the pro Elon and the pro Media Matters camps both saying like bring on the discovery process. Which to your point, it sounds like it could be embarrassing for one or both sides. I mean, for, for media matters, it might turn out that, yes, they were having conversations saying, hey, how can we kind of game the Twitter algorithm 
to show ads appearing next to anti-Semitic content. That would be embarrassing for them. But I also have to imagine that Musk and, and Twitter have much more to lose if it gets that far, because then you've got the public and you've got advertisers potentially getting a huge amount of visibility into internal communications at that company about how they've rolled back guardrails, how they have stripped away these limitations on hate speech, which could be massively problematic for this company as they are trying so hard to get advertisers back on the platform. Yeah, I see much less upside for Musk than Media Matters here. I mean, and worst comes the worst for Media Matters. You know, they get, uh, you know, shown to be a very liberal media organization. And I don't think that will surprise anyone. As for Musk, I doubt he's going to win anything that, that makes his investment in Twitter worthwhile or convince any advertisers to return to the platform because of this lawsuit. He'll just keep the controversy uh, in the news. And uh, I just don't understand why he's pursuing it. I think it's just, you know, kind of venting. And as I wrote a few weeks ago, this is just, you know, I guess, cheaper than hiring a, a psychotherapist. <laughs> Well, yes, it'll be interesting to see where we go from here. Uh, Eric, what, what is the next step? Like, how soon are we going to see movement in this case? Or is it going to be a long, protracted fight over this jurisdictional question? In the next couple of weeks, we should uh, see papers from from Media Matters. Uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure what the first move is going to be. I would guess that's going to be a motion to move this case uh, for a lack of jurisdiction. I, I think Media Matters doesn't want to be fighting this case in Texas, even though, you know, we shouldn't shrug off Texas. I mean, like, there's been some good First Amendment decisions in Texas. So even if they are forced to, to fight the case there, uh, I don't think that they will lose necessarily. But that being said, I think that they will first try to move the case. And after that, then there'll be a decision about uh, whether they're just going to try to make a you know, quick shot to dismiss this case because of you know, lack of actual malice or, or any other deficiency. But uh, before the end of the year, we, we should get our first hint of, of where this case is going. All right, Eric, we'll have you back as the story develops. Thanks as always. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.